The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Good to have you Bereans here with us today. Um, You can probably guess from the title that I don't think the traditional version of Christ's birth is very accurate. There's a lot of tradition about the birth of Christ, but not much of it is biblical. So I want to attempt to dispel some of those myths today. I was going to go on with 1 John this morning, and I thought, man, I can't miss an opportunity to talk about Christmas <laughs> and what it really means. So we're going to look at that this morning. And I want to start with uh, where was Christ born? Where was he born? Well, Micah prophesied that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. He's, uh, Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So it's, he was born in Bethlehem, but not just Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephratah. Why Ephratah? Because there were two Bethlehems. One Bethlehem was in Galilee, the other was in Judea. So just so there's no confusion, the prophecy dealt with the birth of this one who's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. This is just a tiny little town in Jerusalem. It was no big deal other than the fact that King David was born there. Let me ask you to see how good your memory is. What's so cool about the word, the fact that Christ was born in Bethlehem? What does Bethlehem mean? Anybody know? All right. It bet. Lechem, house of bread. What's a house of bread? A bakery. Okay? The bread of life was born in a bakery. Okay? That's the Hebrew, okay? That, and that's what's interesting. You know, these little things like this that we miss, but pretty cool and pretty important. Alright? The end says, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Now this is a prophecy of Christ. He's the one who's going to come forth. He's going to be the ruler in Israel. As Yahweh's prophet, Micah declares that through Yeshua, though he came to birth in Bethlehem, he didn't begin there. These terms we see here at the end of this verse, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days, they convey in the strongest way the Hebrew language can that this one who is to be born in Bethlehem is eternal. There's only one spirit being who is eternal having no beginning and no end, never descended, never described as being created, whose existence preceded creation, and therefore, as Psalm 90, verse 2 says, from everlasting to everlasting. And the only person that is eternal is God. So this is telling us clearly, plainly, Yeshua the Christ is the eternal God. Yeshua, the son of David. He's born in Bethlehem, the city of David, just as Micah prophesied. Luke tells us this about the birth. Luke 2, 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, we've grown up hearing the account, you know, they got there to Bethlehem, they went to the inn, you know, the Holiday Inn, and when they got there, the no vacancy sign was on, they're like, oh, now what do we do? Oh, there happens to be a stable out back, let's go out there and have a baby out there in the stable with the animals, right? I think this image has been uh, used to promote the typical Christmas nativity scene for generations. Everybody just thinks, yeah, that's that's the way it is, right? But I think a careful analysis of the biblical text will show us a different story. That's really all we have to do is look at the text. All right? First of all, the Greek word translated in here is kataluma. And kataluma means a place of rest, usually a guest room. In fact, the same writer Luke uses this very word later where it clearly refers to a guest room and not an inn. Luke 22.11 And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room, kataluma, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
Now here, we have the same author, right? Luke. Same Greek word, but the translators translate one as in and one as guest room. Why? I have not a clue. Other than they don't want to mess up the Christmas story. Okay? The same thing we see in Mark. Mark 14, 14. And whenever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So in Mark, it's also translated as guest room. So why translate it as in, in the story of Christ's birth? What's interesting is that when Luke does want to talk about an inn, he uses a different word completely for that. He used the word for inn, okay? In the story of the Good Samaritan. It says, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So Yeshua mentions that the injured man in the story was taken to the inn. And here Luke uses the Greek word, Pandoheon. The first part of the word pan means all. The second part as a verb means to receive. So pandoheon is the place that receives all. Namely a commercial inn. Now this common Greek term for an inn was so widely known across the Middle East over the centuries that it was absorbed as a Greek loan word into Aramean, Coptic, Arabic, and Turkish with the same meaning as a commercial inn. Alright, so Luke had the vocabulary to say that, if that's what he wanted to say. If he expected his readers to think that Joseph was turned away from some commercial inn, he would have used pandoheon, which clearly meant a commercial inn. But in Luke 2.7, he uses kataluma. That's the place that has no room. Young's literal translation uses the term guest chamber instead of inn. And she brought forth her son, the firstborn, and wrapped him up and laid him down in a manger because there was no, because there was not for them a place in the guest chamber. Now, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, also uses guest room. They translated guest room. The more, the more I use the Christian Standard Bible, the more impressed I am with it that they really go to an effort to make sure they translate things correctly. No room in the inn has taken on the meaning of the inn had a number of rooms, but they were all occupied. Right? The no vacancy sign was on already, switched on, so when Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem. But the Greek word for room here doesn't refer to a room in an inn, but rather space. It's the Greek word tapas. As in, there's no more space on the counter to put something. What Luke is telling us is there was not enough space for them in the guest room. Now, the linguistic evidence shows that Luke used the term kataluma to mean not an inn, but a guest room. And the definite article is used. It's the guest room of a particular house. Now, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia after pointing out very clearly that the word kataluma is used elsewhere in the Gospels for the guest chamber of a private home, they bring that out clearly, then they say this, Was the inn at Bethlehem where Joseph and Mary sought a night's lodging an upper guest room in a private home or some kind of public place for travelers? The question cannot be answered with certainty. Yes, it can be answered with certainty. Linguistically, it can. It is thought by some that it may have been a guest chamber provided by the community. We know that visitors of the annual feasts in Jerusalem were entertained in the guest rooms of private homes. I think that if you understand the culture and if you understand linguistics, then the question can be answered with certainty. Another factor that powerfully argues against the term meaning an inn is that these places, the inns of that day, they were not appropriate for giving birth to a child. All right, A lot of them were basically brothels. Inns at that time were nothing like you know what you think today of a holiday inn. Generally speaking, they had a bad reputation. 
The poor conditions of public inns together with the Semitic spirit of hospitality led the Jews and the early Christians to recommend the keeping of an open house for the benefit of strangers. They just always would welcome strangers in. And you know the different accounts. You know, where they just, I mean, people are like, hey, take my daughter, but don't hurt the guests, you know. I mean, that's how much they thought about it. Besides this, for commercial reasons, inn were usually found along major roads. It's kind of what they do today, right? Yet Bethlehem was a small town in the upper mountains of Judea, and no major Roman road is known to have passed through it. Since it seems to have been an insignificant insignificant village at the time, it's doubtful that an inn even existed in Bethlehem. Now, this gives us reason to realize what Luke really wrote is that there was no room for them in the guest chamber. Certainly, due to the Roman census that was going on at that time, a huge number of people were traveling to their birthplace. Available space in the guest quarters was scarce. Maybe somebody was already there when they got there. So the question then becomes, does that mean that Joseph and Mary aimed to stay in someone's home? But since the guest chamber was full, they were turned out into the night to go into the stable. Mary's in labor. Go to the stable, Mary. That seems almost worse than being turned away from an inn. Okay? Now you're at people's house, probably relatives. They go to the back. We got a stable out back there. Both scenarios are really downright inhospitable, which is far out of line with the way things were at that time. In Christ's day, hospitality to visitors among the Jews was essential. Based on the biblical example and law, Hospitality was a huge deal in that culture. The Jews had a list of six things that commend a man to God in the life to come. Anybody want to guess what the first one was? Come on. Hospitality. All right. That was number one on the list. You say, boy, that wouldn't be too high on our list. But it was. It was top on their list. Where did the Jews get this idea that hospitality was so important? They got it from the Bible. Leviticus 19, 33 and 34, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. You treat him just like you treat everybody else that is part of that group. You shall love him as yourself. Why? Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. Denial of hospitality was shown throughout Scripture to be an outrage. Hospitality toward visitors still important throughout the Middle East. Now, since Bethlehem was Joseph's ancestral home, he probably had relatives there. And being a descendant of King David, whose hometown this was, he would have been highly respected upon arrival. It would be kind of like a descendant of George Washington coming to his hometown, Alexandria, Virginia, after a long time away in the townspeople, not showing him any respect. That's not going to happen. Well, Kenneth Bailey, who is a Middle Eastern and New Testament scholar, explains this. He says, My 30-year experience with villagers in the Middle East is that the intensity of honor shown to the passing guest is still very much in force, especially when it is a returning son of the village who is seeking shelter. We have observed cases where a complete village has turned out in a great celebration to greet a young man who has suddenly arrived unannounced in the village, which his grandfather had had left many years before. Now, it should be pointed out that childbirth also was a major event in this time. All right? In a small village like Bethlehem, many neighboring women would have come together to help with the birth. Bailey states, In the case of a birth... The men will sit apart with the neighbors. That makes sense. We still do that, right? Men, let's go off somewhere. You ladies, you go have the baby. Call us when you're done. But the room would be full of women assisting as midwives. And a private home would have had bedding and facilities and water to the heat and all this stuff required to give a birth. What this all means is that it would have been unthinkable and unimaginable insult and affront to societal decency for Joseph, a returning village son and his laboring wife, to need to seek shelter in an inn to have a baby of Daphitic descent. And then even worse, to be sent out to have the birth in a stable. That simply doesn't fit the culture. It doesn't fit the scripture. 
Nor can it be that they were sent out into the night from a private home. That would, again, that would have been worse. So what actually happened? Well, regret, regrettably, the birth of Christ is, lit, is so overlaid with tradition that it's hard for people even to see the truth anymore. It's hard to let the Bible speak for itself because we, we love tradition. And we just seem, don't seem to want to let it go. The common assumption is that Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem being hastened by her labor pain, so they rushed to an inn only to find the no vacancy sign was on. So they end up in a stable and she gives birth. But a careful reading of the text shows us that they were already in Bethlehem for some days before she ever went into labor. In Luke 2.4, we're told that Mary and Joseph went up to Bethlehem. The verse assumes their arrival. Then verse 6 says this, While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So the text affirms a lapse between the arrival in Bethlehem and the birth of Yeshua. So they must have already been lodging somewhere in Bethlehem when the birth pains began. They had found a house in Bethlehem to stay in probably one of Joseph's relatives. Now why do we think that Yeshua was born in a stable? The text doesn't say that. Look at Luke 2.7. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, Laid them in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. How do we come up with a stable here? Okay, a manger. See, that's where a manger would be, right? Everybody knows mangers aren't stables, right? Wrong. Wrong. We're talking about first century Jerusalem. We're not talking about 21st century America, all right? Mangers were often found in first century homes. Be like, uh, why do they have a manger in their house? In case a baby's born. No. <laughs> Listen, a typical Judean home at that time basically was just a box, okay? But when you came in through the door, the floor would be just ground, all right? And then they would have a raised, half the house would be a raised platform. That's where the family lived. The first part, when you came in the door, that's where the animals stayed. See, the animals stayed in the house. For security, so they, you know, didn't get killed or stolen, and also for warmth. The animals are in the house. You know, I'm always says, not in my house. No, <laughs> I know that, honey, but that's okay. We're not bringing any in. But so that's how the home was set up. All right. The family lived and slept in the raised part of the same room that's set back from the door. And you, there's a lot of scripture that talks about, you know, gives us this indication of this is what's going on here. You know the story of the witch Endor? She sacrifices an animal from her house. And you're like, she takes it out of her house? What's an animal doing in her house? That, this is why. They live there. So, and it, it also was normal for houses to have a guest room upstairs or kind of added on, you know, to the family room. Now, typically, the lower area near the door had the manger or food or water for the animals. So that's where the manger comes from. It was more often the wealthy who had stables for their animals that would be set apart from the house. Thus, a more realistic view of what occurred on Christ's birth, according to the customs of the time, is that the manger was in the house and wasn't in the stable. Now, this culture information gives new understanding to the story of Yeshua's birth. Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem. They find shelter with a family whose separate guest room is full or too small And so they're accommodated among the family in an acceptable village style. The birth takes place there on the raised terrace of the family room, and then the baby's laid in the manger. Now, the Palestinian reader of Luke's account would have instinctively thought, manger, ah, they're in the main family room. And then they would have thought, why didn't they go to the guest room? So the author instinctively replies, because there was no place for them in the guest room. And he goes, oh, I see, the family room is more appropriate anyway. Okay? Now, now that we know the biblical version of Christ's birth, go home and throw out your nativity scenes. Okay? Get rid of those things. Alright? They're all teaching us all the wrong thing. Okay? And and the timeline's all off anyway. Most people have the three wise men there at the nativity scene. Now, get rid of all that. That's not, none of that's right. Okay? None of that's right. Alright? Not only does tradition have the circumstances of the birth wrong, they also have the time wrong. I don't want to ruin this for you, but Christmas, 
Christ was not born on Christmas, okay? <laughs> and if you've been listening to me for any length of time, you, I, every year I go into... My rants have gotten less assaultive, okay? I used to just attack Christmas every way I could. I'm chilling out on that. But how do we know December 25th was not Christ's birthday? I mean, is there a way to tell? Yeah, there is. The Bible tells us. We learn from Luke's Gospel that shepherds received the announcement of the birth of the Savior from an angel, right? Let's look at 2, 8 through 11. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of Yahweh appeared to them, and the glory of Yahweh shone about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not! For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, notice here that Luke says there were shepherds out in the fields. The Greek word here for fields is agroleo. This is the only time it's used in the New Testament. Fields were small plots of land. You know, we think of fields around here like a strawberry field. You go by strawberry and they're huge. They go on forever. Don't. That, that's not. Get that out of your head. That's not what we're talking about here. These plots of land were usually right next to the desert. And the desert is where the shepherds went with their flocks. You didn't want shepherds in the field. You understand that, right? Same reason you don't want, you know, rabbits or deer in your garden. Okay? Because they're destroying it. Okay? So you don't want shepherds in the fields. Now, the fields that we're talking about were about the size of this room. Okay? That's it. And that's all they had to feed their family. So the moment the harvest is gone, then the shepherds move in. Okay? You're done. You cleared it out. The shepherds move in. And the sheep then turn the stubble into dirt. They just eat whatever left there. Okay? If the shepherds were in the fields, if they come in there before the harvest, you're going to have a war. Okay? You're going to have a war because this is the family's livelihood. They can't be coming in there and eating up that stuff. So, if there's shepherds in the field at the time of Yeshua's birth, it had to be after the time of harvest, but before planting. Now, harvest ends about July 1st, and spring planting begins the moment the first rains happen, usually around November 1st. So, Yeshua's birth could not have been between November 1st and July 1st. And that rules out December 25th. But we can narrow it down much more by examining another text in the book of Revelation. Revelation 12, 1 and 2 says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Alright, now here we have, John says, a great sign appeared in heaven. It's important to recognize the relationship of all this to the astronomical symbolism in the text. The word John uses here for sign was the word used in the ancient world to describe the constellations of the zodiac. So John's model for this vision of the church is the constellation Virgo, which does have a crown of 12 stars. Now Virgo is the second largest constellation. It's one of the earliest to be distinguished it lies on the zodiac east of Leo. All the 12 stars are visible ones that could have been seen by observers. And it seems likely that the 12 stars are also representing the 12 signs of the zodiac. And from ancient times, they've been regarded as symbols of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, in Joseph's famous dream, remember his mother, his father, and the 12 tribes were symbolizing the sun, moon, and the 12 stars, the constellations. Now, in his book, The Birth of Christ Recalculated, Ernest Martin says, in the period of Christ's birth, the sun entered, he's talking about this, the zodiac and the astronomical symbols that are happening. He says, the sun entered the head position of the woman, Virgo, about August 13th, and it exited from her feet on October 2nd. But John saw the scene when the sun clothes or adorns the woman. Now, this surely indicates that the position of the sun in the vision was located somewhere mid-bodied of the woman, between her neck and her knees. The only time in the year that the sun could be in position to clothe this celestial woman, to be mid-bodied, is when it was located about 150 and 170 degrees on the ecliptic. 
Now, this clothing of the woman by the sun occurs for 20-day period each year. All right, so we can narrow it down. We got 20 days here. This 20-degree spread could indicate the general time when Christ was born in 3 B.C. The sun would have entered the celestial reign about August 27th and exited from it about September 15th. And listen, people, with technology we have today, you can pull up on the computer screen the, the zodiac. You can set the date and go back in time and see exactly what they saw. It's absolutely amazing. All right? Now, if John, in the book of Revelation, is associating the birth of Christ with the period when the sun is mid-body to the woman, then Christ would have had to be born within the 20-day period. Now, from the point of view of the Magi, who, by the way, were astronomers... This would have been the only logical sign under which the Jewish Messiah might be born, especially if he was to be born of a virgin. Even today, astrologers recognize that the sign of Virgo is the one which has reference to a messianic world ruler to be born of a virgin. Now, the key to narrowing the date down is the moon. John said it was located under her feet. See where it says with the moon, under her feet. All right? Now, since the feet of Virgo, the Virgin, represents the last seven degrees of the constellation, in the time of Christ, this would have been between about 180, 187 degrees along the ecliptic. Now, the moon has to be positioned somewhere under that seven-degree arch. But the moon also has to be in an exact location when the sun is mid-body to Virgo. In the year 3 BC, these two factors came to precise agreement for less than two hours, as observed from Palestine on September 11th. So this is the only day in the whole year that this could have taken place. Now, I'm not an astronomer, but if Martin is right, then it seems quite clear that Christ was born on September 11th, 3 B.C. Now, for any American, that should be easy to understand, right? Easy to remember, right? 9-11. Christ was born on 9-11. That is clear. Like I said, anybody who is familiar with the astronomy and how these things work, this is clear. He told us exactly when Christ was going to be born. Well, then people say, well, what about December 25th? I mean, how do we get that anyway? I always railed on December 25th because I just thought it's a bunch of pagan nonsense. Well, a couple years ago, I taught a message that says, no, I don't think it's so pagan anymore, all right? Martin states this. Jupiter, recognized by Jews and Gentiles alike as the planet of the Messiah, was located in Virgo's womb and standing still directly over Bethlehem on December 25th, 2 B.C. So this is a year later. When the child was a a little over a year old, Matthew states that the Holy Family was settled in a house by the time the Magi visited. So the kings, when they visited, they didn't visit the nativity scene, okay? They're not there at the house. You know, oh, look at the baby just got born. They're, he's over a year old when they show up, okay? Matthew 2, 10 through 11. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, Herod ordered the slaughter of infants from what age? Two years old. Why did he want to go all that range? Because it's been over a year. If this was a brand new baby, he's not going to kill everyone two years old down. He wanted to make sure he got him. It's been over a year. All right? The child is no longer a newborn. So when the Magi showed up to worship Yeshua, it's December 25th, 2 B.C. So Christmas is the day that the Magi showed up with gifts to worship the king. And people say, yeah, see, that's what we do. (laughs) No. No. Listen, if you come and give your gifts to Yeshua on the 25th, that's great. But it's funny because it's his birthday and he gets nothing. And everybody else gets something, okay? And let's don't go there. All right. (laughs) All right. Let's go back to September 11th and talk about that for a minute. Uh, let me give you something that some off-the-wall preacher said. I believe, I believe that Yeshua the Christ, the living water, was born into this world during the Feast of Tabernacles. That is wrong. Okay? 
<laughs> and this, this is why I don't write books. Okay? I have to figure out what I believe before I write books. Okay? Listen, I used to teach Christ was born in the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, no. Okay? He was actually born in the Feast of Trumpets, which was 15 days earlier than the Feast of Tabernacles. And listen, what I'm going to share with you now trumps, get it, trumps the arguments I used to give for the birth of tabernacles, okay? (laughs) We just saw from Revelation 12 that Christ was born on September 11th, 3 B.C. Well, in the year 3 B.C., the first of Tishri was September 11th. That's the Feast of Trumpets. The first of Tishri is on September 11th. Tishri 1 is the first day of the Jewish month. The date was also called the Day of Trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets was to take place on the first day of the seventh month. Numbers 29.1 says, On the first day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work. It is a day for you to blow the trumpets. Now, the close proximity of the position of the sun and the moon, as described in Revelation indicate a new moon time frame, which is exactly the situation which exists on the first day of the lunar month. Tishri 1 was the Feast of Trumpets, and that was the day that Yeshua was born. Now, from this we can see that Yeshua's birth was not on the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles occurred in the middle of the lunar month. Therefore, there's no way that it fits with Revelation 12. Now, here's another thing. When you really think about it, I think it should be obvious that Yeshua could not have been born during one of the pilgrim feasts. Why not? What had to happen on a pilgrim feast? Alright, three. there's three pilgrim feasts. Alright, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So Tabernacles is a pilgrim feast. On a pilgrim feast... All males, 20 years old and older, had to go to Jerusalem to worship. All Jewish men required by law to be there, according to Deuteronomy 16, 6, 11, and 16. But Luke tells us that during Yeshua's birth, all went to register each to his own town. Now, look at Luke 2, 1-6. through 6. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, You realize when it says all the world, it's talking about the Roman world, the Roman Empire, okay? They're not dictating people that, you know, everybody in the whole world is going to go. No, the Roman world, all right? This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David. So, all went to be registered to their own town. He says, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, at the time of his birth. This rules out tabernacles as a date for his birth. Joseph and Mary traveled specifically to Bethlehem for a census. Now, would it make sense for the Romans to have a census on one of the pilgrim feasts? What are the Jews going to do? Well, the Romans say we have to go to our city of birth. God says we have to go to Jerusalem. Who are we going to obey? That's not going to work out too well for the Romans. You know, it's very impractical for them to have that census on a feast day. A pilgrim feast day. So avoiding these three pilgrim feast days would have been, I think, a primary consideration for the Romans in order to have compliance with this census. All right, here's an interesting side note on the Feast of Trumpets. Ancient Jewish tradition held that the resurrection of the dead would occur on the Feast of Trumpets. Reflecting this tradition, Jewish gravestones were often engraved with a shofar, trumpet. God's last trumpet and the resurrection of the righteous are intricately connected in the New Testament. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. 
Now, most of us recognize this event as a resurrection, but few of us identify it with the Feast of Trumpets. So both the birth of Yeshua's first coming and his second coming were on the Feast of Trumpets. Two bookends in the life and redemptive ministry of Yeshua, both occurring at the appointed times on this most significant date in the Jewish calendar year. It's like the Lord laid it out for us so clearly, but somehow we got way off track and way off track. All right. So that's the biblical version of the birth of Christ. He was born not in a stable. He's born in a, in a house, traditional Palestinian house. He wasn't born on December 25th. He's born on the Feast of Trumpets, September 11th, 3 B.C. I think that's important because it's what the Bible teaches. And I think truth is important. Truth matters. Alright, so that, that's what the Bible's telling us. But you know what the most important thing about the birth of Christ is? What's the most important thing? If we're going to talk about the birth of Christ, let me tell you something worth fighting for. Why did He come? Why was He born? Okay? Alright. Matthew, let's read this text that, that Anthony read earlier. Now, the birth of Yeshua, the Christ, took place this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Can you even fathom Mary and Joseph? Mary's probably 10 to 12 years old. That's customary for this culture, okay? I know that blows our mind, but that's, you know, that's customary. That's how they did it, okay? The men were usually 20. The girls were 10 to 13. All right? So this is, you know, and she, can you imagine being married and you go to Joseph saying, uh, guess what, I'm pregnant. And he's like, oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> you know, I mean, he knows it's not him, so he figures it's somebody else. And he doesn't, you know, but he's going to just get rid of her. Betrothal period, that was the whole purpose of the betrothal period. All right? It's to make sure nothing's going on. A year period. The text goes on. But as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Yeshua. People, that angel did not tell Mary to call this baby Jesus. First of all, that name didn't exist at that time. There is no letter J until the 17th century. Okay, so nobody until the 17th century called him Jesus. And here's why you call him Yeshua. He's going to save his people from their sins. Alright, the text goes on. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God is with us. God is with us. Can you just fathom that for a second? This has to be the greatest miracle. This has to be the most fantastic truth recorded in the page of Scripture. The God of all creation, the God who spoke the world into existence, the God who controls everything, became a man. He appeared on earth on September 11th, 3 B.C., as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie, stare, wiggle, and make noises. And he did cry. Crying's not a sin, okay? Crying's what babies do. He needed to be fed. He needed to be changed like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. God became a man. Why did God become a man? The answer is in verse 21 of that text. They're going to call His name Yeshua. He'll save His people from their sins. That's the reason for His coming. Listen, Yeshua means Yahweh's salvation or salvation from Yahweh. We've talked about this so much. Hebrew names have meaning. Jesus doesn't mean anything. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. And it says He came to save His people. That's why His name was Yeshua, because He was Yahweh's salvation. Now, when it says he came to save his people, we got people who want to argue us. That's only the Israelites. They're the only ones that get saved. No, that's really ridiculous. Paul writes this in Galatians 
Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. Now, if you're back in Genesis, you're going to think offspring. Well, that's all the descendants that come from Abraham, right? But Paul tells us it doesn't say and offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So the promises were to Abraham and his offspring, and the offspring was Christ. So Paul's saying the primary recipients of the Abrahamic covenant are Abraham and Christ. Now this, of course, include all who are in Christ, all believers. This promise is not realized in ethnic Jews. It's realized in Jews and Gentiles, whoever puts their trust in Christ. See, from the moment Christ showed up and began His ministry, any Jew that rejected Him was no longer part of God's covenant community. They were were rejecting the Savior. In the birth of Yeshua, God invaded human history in the form of a man. And this Yeshua lived a sinless life And then He died a substitutionary death at Calvary. On that cross, Yeshua took upon Himself our sin. He received our judgment that we deserved as sinners. So when we ask, why was Christ born? He was born to die. Mark 10.45 For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Ransom here is the Greek word lutron. It's a word used to denote the buying back of a war captive, as well as many other concepts. In the Septuagint, lutron was used of a price that a man paid to redeem his life. It was a payment made to obtain release, to obtain freedom. The ransom price that Christ paid was his life. And that's why the Bible says again and again that Christ died to save us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 We were justified by His blood. Blood is metonymy for the death of Christ. Romans 5.9 We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Romans 5.10 He bore our sins in His body on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, 1 Peter 3.18. We must understand that this act of giving His life as a ransom was intentional. It says He came to do it. Christ didn't come to earth for some other reason than get caught up in some plot and resulted in His death. He came to die. Because He was an innocent, infinite sufferer, He satisfied fully and completely the righteous demands of a holy God And God was propitiated. That's not a word people use too much anymore, is it? Or at all. (laughs) Romans 3, 24-25 says, And are justified by His grace through a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Yeshua, who God put forth as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. So we're declared righteous through redemption on the basis of propitiation. People, to understand propitiation is to understand the Gospel. And without it, you have no Gospel. The Greek word used here for propitiation is hilasterion. And it means the removal of wrath. By the offering of a sacrifice. God was angry. He's not angry anymore because He received a sacrifice. The death of His Son. His wrath has been removed. It is the turning of God's wrath away from the sinner by a sacrifice made to satisfy God. People, there's no sacrifice we could offer. There's nothing we could do personally to turn away God's wrath. But God Himself has done for us what we never could. And understanding propitiation is so important. And I don't think Christians really get this, but here's what you have to get, people. When you get to heaven, you deserve to be there. You deserve to be there. Why? Because you're in union with Christ, one thing, and you, Christ, propitiated you. He made right relationship with God. And it's not like, you know, God's letting you in. He's got, God is not being a lenient parent like we have today. Okay, you violated this, but oh, that's okay, I'll just forget about 
God's wrath was poured out on His Son. So my price is paid in full. So when I get to heaven, I deserve to be there. That's an incredible thought, people. To walk in with your head up. You know, we're not like, oh God, I must have slipped me in the back door. No! It's paid in full through Christ. I'm in union with His Son. Whoever, whatever Christ is and has, I am and have because I'm in union with Him. I share everything with Him. I am one with Christ. People, you have as much chance of losing your salvation as Christ has getting kicked out of the Trinity. What are the chances of that? There's no chance, people. You're in union with Christ. That's why I've said often, people who think you can lose your salvation, they don't understand salvation. It's an act of God on our behalf. Okay? It's God Himself providing the propitiation in His own Son. It's God contriving a way whereby His own wrath gets full vent. And yet we get saved. The very God we have offended has provided the way whereby the offense has been dealt with. His anger, His wrath against the sinner has been satisfied and He is appeased. Christ is our propitiation. That is, out of love for the glory of God, He absorbed the wrath of God that was rightly ours so that it might be plain that when we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Yeshua, God will be manifestly just, righteous, and counting us righteous. See, that's the thing. God's justice is in view here. And it's not just to just say, you violated my laws, but it's okay, I'm going to slide. That's not justice. You have to pay. Our courts are so messed up today. Justice is blind. It's crippled. It's whatever, okay? But God is not. And God said, I'm just. And so guess what? I can forgive you and let you into my heaven and still be just because someone else paid for you. Incredible. Listen, people, if you ever for a moment question God's love, think about propitiation. That's how much He loves you. That He put His Son to death for you. See God doing what we could not do on our own. Satisfying His justice through the bloody death of His Son on the cross. Yeshua the Christ in the Incarnation was born into this world in order to die for sinners. Christ's death was substitutionary. He died to bear our sins and to give us His righteousness. Yeshua paid it all. And what He asks from us is that we trust Him and then we follow Him as His children. He wants our trust. That's what He wants. He's done everything. There's nothing for us to do but believe in what He has done for us. Now, believers, if we have opportunity this Christmas season, Take it to tell people why this baby was born in Bethlehem. That he came to die for his people. And encourage people, challenge people with the gospel. Let's just use, you know, Spurgeon used to say, oh well, Christmas is here. We might as well get used to it and take the opportunity to present the gospel. And I agree with them. It's here. Oh well, it'll be gone soon. But let's take the opportunity to present the gospel to all who will listen. And I pray that we, like the wise men 2,000 years ago, would worship Him. They realized who He was. So many people today, they, they have a celebration around this baby in Bethlehem, but they don't have a clue well, who He is or why He came or what was the purpose of it. And that's the most important thing about the birth of Christ. I mean, I think, I think we know without doubt when He was born, where He was born, all these circumstances, but the most important thing is why was He born? He was born to die. Incredible story, people. Let's pray. Father, thank You this morning for the opportunity, Lord, to look at Your Word. Father, I pray You'd give us the hearts of Bereans and we would not believe everything we hear, everything we read, but we would study the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Lord, I thank You for the most incredible gift we could ever imagine. And while we were Your enemies, You sent Your Son to die for us. It's hard to fathom, Lord. We thank You. I pray that our lives would be lived out in such gratitude for what You have done for us that we pour them out in service to You.
Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Amen. All right. Questions, comments. September 11th. Don't forget it. Cheryl. For 20 years. <laughs> Come on, Dave. <laughs> did I say that? I said I've been reading it for over 20. No? What did I? Yeah, it's been longer than 20 years. <laughs> yeah. This church is 23 years old, so I'm serious. Does that make you feel old? <laughs> Gary? couldn't. I got a, a text from one of our online followers, Kevin Flowers. <laughs> Kevin, we miss you being here today. All right. He says September 11th now has a, a great meaning for me. Amen. Hang on. The texts are coming in. I better get out my phone here. Oh, Shelly. All right. Anybody else? Yeah. One of our Wednesday night gatherings that kind of went up on the the star. Yeah, I think it's yeah Star Bethlehem. The video is called. If you want to look it up. Uh, Star Bethlehem, it's amazing. And yeah. Like I said, he gets into all the astronomical symbolism behind that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. I uh, got a message from Tanya. Tanya, good to hear from you. You guys, of course, I hear from you guys all the time, I think. And I appreciate that. It says, awesome message. I've often wondered about the Zodiac. Uh, people, there is, you know, there is so much in the Zodiac that we don't get. And I've taught some on this, okay? I really believe the gospel was laid out in the Zodiac, okay? Um, that's a personal opinion. I know everybody doesn't agree with me on that, but, you know, I, when God told Abraham, look at the stars, I think there's a message in those stars for him. And uh, like I said, Revelation 12 is very clear on this, you know, date and time and all this, when this happened. So we know 